From Irmo to Istanbul, from Taipei to Tunisia, we tell the stories of the people who make the world of international disputes turn. We give glimpses into their lives and give insights from their experience. These accounts come from every sector and every industry from around the globe. Simply put, and without further ado, I am Chris Campbell, and you're listening to Tales of the Tribunal, where practice meets personality. Listeners, welcome back to Tales of the Tribunal. Thank you for coming back for another story, tale, and peek into the world of international arbitration. I'm your host, Chris Campbell, and let's jump into today's episode. Last week, we announced the creation of a new initiative, the Association of Black Arbitration Professionals, ABAP. We mentioned that said organization was going live this week, and as of the time of recording, I am pleased to say that you can find us live at ABAP, that's A-B-A-P-Web.org. In case you missed the announcement, the organization is meant to create a platform of finding and engaging with black arbitration practitioners and professionals from across the globe, and with the purpose of creating and fostering greater diversity in the field. I, along with the other steering committee members, welcome your support. Check out the website. Then, one more quick announcement before we get into introducing today's guest. If you are enjoying the show, please take a brief moment to leave us a review and to share the show with a friend or colleague. We are approaching 30,000 downloads on our primary streaming platform and would love to reach it before the end of the summer. All right, this week's episode, as we foreshadowed last week, is a very special guest. She is a giant in the international legal space, including arbitration and intellectual property. She is a senior of counsel with a large multinational firm with experience and expertise from across the globe. And she happens to be the president of a little organization called the American Bar Association. I'm speaking, of course, of Miss Deborah Enix Ross. Deborah was kind enough to stop by the digital studio and we had a fantastic time. Deborah has been a trailblazer in the field, especially for black lawyers looking to make their way into international arbitration. So it was an honor to have her in the studio, especially for the Juneteenth episode. Hey! So sit back, relax, check your ABA membership status, and enjoy my conversation with ABA president Deborah Enix Ross. And we'll see you on the other side of the show. back to Tales of the Tribunal with Chris Campbell. I'm your host, Chris Campbell, here to tell you another tale, another story from around the wide, wide world of international law, business, and dispute resolution. Listeners, listen, we have a very special guest with us today. Um, her reputation precedes her. You will have heard all the fantastic things in her CV that we'll have just read off at the intro to the show. I'm speaking, of course, of ABA President Deborah Enix Ross. Deborah, welcome to the show. Good morning. Hi, Chris. It's really happy. I'm really happy to be here. We're excited for you to be here, too. And um, as folks will probably heard in the intro, um, I was look, you, you already won a major fan support when you when you and I ran into each other in my hometown of Columbia, South Carolina. And I saw you were there. I was like, oh, my gosh, yes, we have to meet. <laughs> yes. Well, it, that was really 
one of the honors for me as ABA president to essentially go home because as I mentioned, my my mom's family is from Bishopville, South Carolina. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was a really special time for me. Absolutely. Well, look, um, let, let's we will get into that um, a little bit. And uh, why don't we start at the at the beginning, the question that we ask all of our guests, who are you? Where are you from? What do the people need to know? Well, I think the the easiest way to say it is that I'm just a girl who grew up in Harlem in New York City, uh, who never thought that I would become president of the American Bar Association. Uh, but it's been a wonderful journey, starting with uh, public schools uh, in in the city and then going off to college and law school at the University of, of Miami. Uh, and some might say, how do you get from New York to, to Miami? Well, it's, a, it's an interesting journey uh, and one that I'm really proud of. Sure. And well, look, let's uh, let's break that down a little bit. So, um, you know, everything from envisioning that one day you might be ABA president. Let's let's go before that. Did you know that you always wanted to be a lawyer, that you wanted to go to law school? I think, you know, when I was in sixth grade, we went on a field trip. And when you're in uh, elementary school, there's nothing more exciting than getting out of the classroom. So going on True. a field trip was was just a fantastic uh, idea, and we went to visit the courts in New York City. Uh, and I remember going into the courtroom and seeing the man sitting uh, up high in a in a black robe, who was very uh, thoughtful and really smart and seemed really fair. Uh, and I said to my teacher, "Who is that?" And my teacher said, "That's a judge." And I said hmm, uh, how do you become a judge? And she said, first, you have to go to law school. Now, I think that that was the seed that was planted. Uh, And then when I went to college, though I didn't go to college thinking I wanted to be a lawyer, I went to college thinking that I would be a journalist. I I guess I figured I would be Oprah before Oprah, before we knew who Oprah was. (laughs) (laughs) So I was a broadcast journalism major uh, in, in, in college. Uh, And then in my uh, senior year of of college, I had an internship at one of the local television stations. uh, And I noticed that the women reporters who got the best assignments were a little, shall we say, friendly with the station manager. And of course, this was before the Me Too movement, but it was Mm -hmm. enough for me to recognize that I wanted to have a career and a profession where I could be a bit more independent. So I went to law school, I think, going back in my mind to that that sixth grade experience and thinking about law. And I went to law school thinking that I would be a First Amendment lawyer. So kind of combining the journalism background with the with the legal background. So that's how I ended up going to law school. Well, no, that's quite a fascinating story that it was kind of like uh, maybe a, a combination of things in life um, and purposes that kind of came together to be that vision for for what you could be. Um, I, I wonder then, so so that gets us to, you know, going to courts as a schoolgirl, broadcast internship, um, and then going to to eventually applying to law school. What I think is really remarkable from there is that you then end up developing that into this fantastic career in international law. Can you connect the dots for us a little bit? How did that happen? 
Well, I will tell you, you know, and hopefully this doesn't come across as just kind of happenstance all the time, although I, I do think that there are certain directions that you take forks in the road. And, and so here's another one. When I went to law school, as I said, wanting to be a First Amendment lawyer and took constitutional law, uh, and I was, here's where I would say was a lack of maturity on my part at that stage. When I took constitutional law, uh, as we will all know, the argument to abolish slavery was an interstate commerce clause argument and not it's morally wrong and therefore we should abolish slavery. And I remember being really offended uh, by that. And here's where I talk about the lack of maturity, because if I'd been more mature, perhaps what I would have said is how clever were the lawyers who made the argument a successful argument using one aspect of the law for a different purpose. But that's not where I was. And I think in the end, I wasn't meant to be a First Amendment lawyer. So I started thinking, what else do I like to do? And ever since I was a child, I'd always loved uh, different cultures and languages. And I went, aha, international law. Not having a clue what that would look like, but that was that began that focus uh, and shifting towards international law. And, and thereafter, all of my electives, uh, I, I um, opted for courses in international law, and that put me on the path that that we're, that has me where I am today. And the rest is history. And the rest, as they say, is history. <laughs> um, you know, you raise a really fascinating point um, that especially I think maybe we as folks that work in international law, it just sort of intuitively makes sense to us, you know, why these things are important um, and how they play in our daily lives. But I think for many American lawyers, they kind of get this notion that because they do international law, that they don't really need to pay attention to the developments in, in the international legal world. Um, in your mind, why does a domestic U.S. attorney need to be paying attention to international law? Um, yeah, maybe that. Maybe that's a good start. <laughs> Yeah, so, uh, you know, I, I completely understand. We talk about sometimes in the ABA Main Street lawyers and why should they care about international law? And the truth is that, especially now, more and more of what all of us do has an international component or is at least influenced by aspects of international law. So even if you don't think of yourself as an international lawyer, you think of yourself as someone who practices family law in a small town in pick a state in the US, there may come a time where you will have a client or someone who's involved in an international uh, element of family law, and you're going to need to at least understand it or understand where you should go to get advice on that issue. So I think that it, it will certainly touch all aspects of most lawyers' lives. And so at least being aware of, of what that means and where you can go to get information or to connect with lawyers whose primary area is international law will be uh, very useful. And well, I guess maybe the natural follow-up there is 
for the average lawyer that maybe doesn't participate in international law in an active way anyway, what are some ways that they can do that or maybe think about how to stay informed about what's going on in the international legal world? Well, this is, for me, uh, what I would call a no-brainer as president of the American Bar Association. Obviously, I'm going to say that uh, there are opportunities within the ABA, especially since my first home in the ABA was the international law section. Uh, mm -hmm. But it is really a, a way, whether it's the international section or other uh, uh, sections in the ABA, have lawyers that focus on international law. And that's probably the easiest way uh, to be a member of the ABA and then uh, get information through those sections. And it's not just the information, it's the contacts as well. Uh, and what I have found is that people are very generous in giving their time and offering their advice, uh, especially to people that are new to a particular practice area or it's not their main area of focus and you just want to talk through that issue with someone, I have found that people within the ABA are very willing to do that. Um, so I would say that's probably the easiest way, especially if it's not your day-to-day -day practice. No, I think that's that's right. You know, one of the first things that I did uh, when I got licensed to knowing I wanted to go into international law was I joined the international law section at ABA and um, was off to the races. <laughs> that's exactly what I did, because when I uh, first was admitted, I started out as a legal services lawyer. Uh, and it and it took me seven years to get my first job in international law. But all that time I was involved in the international law section. I was doing other things in my day job, but uh, using my con contacts and connections in both the ABA and for me, it was the New York City bar as well uh, to, to try and develop uh, first of all, d determine what kind of international law practice I wanted, uh, and then to to work with practitioners in the field to to get that experience. Yeah, you know, it's um, it, it, this is a really fun piece of little, little trivia that I, I don't think a lot of folks realize. I think my second time ever going to Washington D.C. was for an ABA conference. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I just, I'd been, I traveled all these other places, been a lot of other places in the world, but just had only been to DC once prior and then eventually, you know, had an ABA conference in DC and I was hooked and I went straight on from there. That, that, that is a great, that's love. That's a really good trivia point. I love it. Yeah. Um, and so let, let's stay right there with the ABA then for, um, for a few moments then. So, okay. So you got involved in the ABA early on in your career as well. Um, I'm going to ask you to connect the dots again. How does starting, you know, getting involved with the ABA now to ABA president. I mean, you know, kind of what was that journey like or how, how did the winds of change take you to that? Yeah, so I certainly didn't join the ABA thinking, aha, and one day I'll be president of the ABA. That was so far from my thought. I literally joined right after graduating from law school. I took my graduation money that uh, my parents and, and relatives and friends gave me and I pulled it all together and went to my first ABA meeting in 1982 uh, in San Francisco. And I walked into the international law section. I think it was a reception. I knew no one and said, okay, I'm just going to figure this out. And my thinking was, if I'm around international lawyers, I will figure out what area of international law 
uh, is most attractive to me and perhaps uh, be able to get leads on a job because I graduated in 81, we thought was the back then with the worst time ever for lawyers to graduate because of the recession. Um, so that was how I, I started in the ABA. And I began working my way up through committees uh, in the ABA. Eventually, uh, my area of focus became arbitration, international arbitration. So I did a lot of work in the International Arbitration Committee. And here's what I would say to young lawyers in particular. They tend to give the young lawyers the job like secretary or, you know, uh, something which, which requires a lot of work, but not a lot of glamour. But for me, that was a way for me to dig into the issues. Uh, and, and really, because she who holds the pen dictates what the, the uh, meeting looks like, what the agenda looks like, what the minutes look like, and you really have to understand the issues in order to succinctly capture those minutes. So I started there and began working my way up uh, within the section. And there was at one point a woman who's now deceased. Her name is Rona Mears. Uh, and she was the first woman to chair the international law section. And she tapped me on my shoulder one day, literally, you know, while I was in line, probably at a reception. And she said, you know, one day you could chair the section. Mm. And I, it had never dawned on me. I just enjoyed my committee work, enjoyed what I was doing. Um, but I think that that's also a lesson for all of us. When we see people with talents, we should help them to nurture those talents and we should help them uh, and encourage them. So that was the beginning for me. I chaired the international section and then I chaired the SOC and the Center for Human Rights uh, and uh, slowly you know, started making my way up in the larger ABA, culminating with chairing the uh, House of Delegates, the, of course, the policy making body in the ABA, uh, and then ultimately running for and successfully becoming president. Well, look, I, I think there's a lot there. Um, you know, one of the things that I think a lot of younger lawyers sometimes get the impression is that, you know, whatever your extracurricular is, that's your one extracurricular. You can't do anything else. You have to be all about that. And I think the way that you've laid it out is, is really instructive in that it's okay to do one thing for a while, really enjoy that, maybe take a break, come back to it. And I think that sometimes that point is lost, that you don't have to have to start with the goal of saying, hey, I'm only joining this so I can lead the organization one day. I mean, there's a lot to be gained in between. Yeah, my, my feeling was, was, number one, if I join any association, I'm getting my money's worth, right? Because for me, mm -hmm. especially, again, I started as a legal services lawyer. This was a big spend. ABA dues was a big spend for me. No one reimbursed the dues. So it was an investment in myself. So I'm paying this money. I want to get the most out of it. And the other aspect for me is if I join an organization, then I'm going to contribute to it in the ways that I can. Whatever my skill sets are, if it will help further the goals of the organization, then I'm going to do that. So I think with those two points in mind, I approach the ABA as uh, an investment in myself 
And uh, along the way, I was having a great time. I, I made some wonderful friends that are lifelong friends uh, and traveled to some interesting places uh, and um, was able, hopefully, to also contribute to the legal profession. Because I do feel that as lawyers, we need to contribute to the profession that gives us so much. It gives us our livelihood, but we also contribute to society. It's a bigger calling than, than, than just uh, what do I get out of it? It is a profession and we need to uphold the profession. Oh, absolutely. Um, and, and what I will say there, you know, before we, we, we shift away from the ABA a little bit is, you know, before and we, we talk about, you know, how you just mature um, in, in your career, uh, you know, I, I've been involved with the ABA, like I said, since I, I, I've been sworn in and a few years ago. You know, it used to really get under my skin when I might be talking with a colleague and I would say, oh, well, you should join the ABA or you should get involved with the ABA. And they might say, oh, the ABA doesn't do anything. And and I would just like want to go on to like a 10 minute tirade to them. And now yes. I've realized that's probably not productive. They probably just feel even more like, OK, <laughs> it's a sore subject. And instead of telling folks, you can just show them. You can say, well, look, you know, you may be interested in something like this. You can afford them opportunities and things like that. And that way they're seeing it without you having to like go into pitch mode, um, which tends to not be effective anyway. <laughs> yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, one of the things I, I've, I've learned as ABA president or probably coming up in the ABA, we are terrible at telling our own story. We, we don't um, uh, sh show people all of the great work that we do that benefits them that they don't even know about. So it, it's not even uh, if it's directly connected to your practice area, but all of the things that we do to enhance the practice of law and the profession that people take for granted uh, and we don't uh, tell that story uh, in, in a way that we, we should or could. Uh, so I have taken the same tactic that you have. I, I don't, you know, rail and say you, why? But I just explain how it has helped me and how it, depending on who I'm talking to, guiding them towards areas where it might be beneficial for them. Uh, and, and I think that is especially important to get across to younger lawyers. Because, you know, in my, my generation, we kind of thought we, you have to be an ABA member in order to be a part of the profession. And I think the younger lawyers don't necessarily see it that way. I'm not saying they're not passionate about issues. I think that they are as passionate about issues and causes as anyone. They don't necessarily think you need to be joining an association in order to do that work. And so we've got to really let them know why they can take those passions and channel, channel them uh, in ways that will make it even uh, better for them through whether it's the ABA or even other bar associations. Well, that's right. And, um, you know, there, there is one more question that I'll venture for the ABA and then we will uh, move on to some other topics. It's that, you know, uh, we're having this conversation in the late spring, uh, probably just before summer. Um, you know, your tenure as ABA president will be winding up here um, in a few months. Um, what do you August have planned? August 8th, but who's counting? <laughs> August 8th, big, 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 big red circle on the calendar. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Um, when, you're, when your tenure concludes, um, you know, especially from coming from something like ABA president, I mean, 
what's on your mind? Do you have any idea of what you want to do next in terms of maybe projects or other initiatives? Yeah, so uh, you know, this has been a tremendous platform and an opportunity. Uh, and, you know, one day I could sit down and tell you all the great things that have happened to me because I've been ABA president. Uh, two of them that really resonate for me is speaking to law students and in particular speaking to uh, going to visit the six HBCU law uh, universities that have law schools. So for those who may not know, HBCU stands for Historically Black Colleges and Universities. And there are only six in the U.S. that actually have law schools attached to them. So being able to go and visit those six schools in particular um, has been very rewarding. And I think out of that has come uh, what I would hope to be an effort to help sustain those uh, universities and help sustain those law schools. So I'd like to be involved in those conversations post uh, ABA presidency. Uh, you know, I will go back to my day job. You know, I've been very fortunate <laughs> sure. that my firm, Devil Boys and Plimpton in New York, shout out, uh, has been so supportive of not just me, but all of our lawyers who want to be involved in bar association work or pro bono work. It's just an extraordinary uh, opportunity that the firm has granted me. Uh, and I, I really appreciate that. Um, and then the other non-ABA area where I give a, uh, spend a lot of my time is on Union County College in New Jersey. Uh, raising, and and uh, uh, county colleges uh, or, or you know, th th these are really, uh, these two-year institutions, I think, are um, uh, what, what I would call a gem that uh, people don't recognize and the value of community colleges. So I've been working with this one in particular to try and do what we call close the gap, making sure that more African-American students are, get through the two-year colleges. And then if they want to go on beyond that, uh, to help them do that. And I, I look at that as kind of a pipeline. Uh, hopefully some of them will actually go on to, to law school and become uh, wonderful lawyers and ABA members. So it's a long-term investment, but it's something I'm really excited about. Absolutely. No, those sounds like uh, plenty to keep you busy um, after yes. after early August. <laughs> yes. August 8th. But who's August 8th. I'm, I, okay. <laughs> hey, 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 August 8th. August 8th. Um, um, you know, you know, turning turning our focus a little bit. Um, one of the things I'm mindful of is that beginning in, in 2020 um, and, I, and I guess especially pertinent as um, as the time of recording. Earlier this week, uh, the legendary activist, uh, entertainer, human rights um, figure Harry Belafonte passed away. And um, for those that were fans of his work um, on screen and, um, and and in political life, public life, he was dedicated to pushing and fighting for change. Um, and over the last several years, especially, you've seen all this discussion and focus on um, ethnic and cultural diversity in international arbitration. Um, an international law and legal community more broadly. What are some things that you think 
maybe we as a legal profession can do to to increase and move the needle on diversity? Um, if anything comes to mind for you. Yeah. So um, uh, the first is to recognize diversity doesn't just happen. It has to be intentional and it has to be measured and we have to be vigilant uh, with respect to our efforts. Now, I will say uh, I was pleasantly surprised when I took a recent uh, trip as ABA president to Japan and met with the legal community there, both in Tokyo and Osaka. And the number one topic that they wanted to discuss was diversity. And, and what were our efforts in the ABA and whether those could be adapted, not adopted, because it has to be its own uh, uh, program wherever you are, but adapted. What is the best learning from us? What are the mistakes that we made that they can learn from? It was the number one topic. Uh, wow. And that was really, uh, for me, eye-opening, frankly. Uh, now, diversity for them tended to be more gender diversity, uh, but they also recognized that in Japan, they are starting to have uh, more uh, ethnic and, and racial diversity in, in Japan as well. And so as a society, as lawyers, they want to lead first within the legal profession, but then recognizing their place in society, the impact it will have. And it was the same when I was speaking at a women's group uh, in, in Denmark. Uh, diversity is at the forefront of many efforts. So uh, what I say is that's all very good, but again, it doesn't just happen. And we can have tools and we certainly have it in the ABA. We have a, a diversity survey that uh, in-house counsel can use to measure their outside lawyers and, and their diversity efforts. But we have got to be, uh, again, intentional and we have, to, we have to measure. And when I say vigilant, when I think about my own career in international arbitration, when I started, there were there were very few women, and I dare say even fewer lawyers of color involved in international arbitration. And if you look around today, that's not the case. There are many women involved in international arbitration at every level, whether it's as counsel, as arbitrators, in institutions, uh, but there's still a need to keep pushing. And so for me, one of the things, the way that I do it and the way that I serve is I'm on the nominating committee, as in nominating arbitrators to serve uh, in ICC arbitrations. Uh, and we are, um, I think, I know, very focused on making sure that we have a pool of arbitrators from which we can draw that is as diverse as it can possibly be. Uh, and so that's what I mean by intentional and what are you doing and all of these efforts. I think if we keep pushing, we will continue to see the, the progress that I, that certainly didn't exist 40 years ago when I began practicing. 
Yeah, and I think the some of those things that you've outlined right there, being intentional, keeping it at the forefront of the discussion, um, is the only way that you know whether it's diversity or any change that you want to see. If you're not thinking about it, if you're not talking about it, if you're not going to make it intentional effort to get there, going to measure it, be accountable, ain't going to happen. Exactly. Happen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that whether it's diversity or New Year's resolutions or anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, as I tell people all the time, it, it, any diet works if you follow it, you know, mm. so that's a good uh, one. I'm I, have taking per- I, I have personal experience with that. I, you know, lots of diets, but not if you don't follow it, so. <laughs> hey, listen, we're going to let that one stick because I got my, my doctor might be listening. She said, you need to get it, get it together, get it together. Um, but, uh, okay, well, look, and there, there is one more question I wanted to um uh, to get your thoughts on before we kind of shift into sort of the, the speed round here in a little bit. Um, yeah. I would be remiss if I didn't raise this um, as it's kind of taken the legal, well, a lot of industries, but especially the legal world by storm. Um, it seems that we have entered uh, the age of the machines um, with AI and machine learning presenting sort of all these novel questions for IP dispute resolution and really just kind of an existential question for the practice of law. Uh, how do you think the, the modern lawyer prepares for this new age? Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it's going to be um, in the same way that we prepared for email. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm old enough to remember fax machines and telex and, and what the implications were for, for those use of that technology. Um, we will still need to be as lawyers vigilant and ethical uh, and you know we can use these tools but we have to do so in a way recognizing that they they are not a substitute for our own judgment and our own uh, abilities uh, as lawyers and I, I was just talking to someone in Texas and he's you know he he said he kind of put in motion to dismiss and he put in the elements uh, for his particular case and out came this uh, motion w- within minutes, you know? Mm-hmm. Now he had to go back. Some of it was not quite factually uh, nuanced enough, uh, but it at least gave him um, uh, essentially a draft. Uh, and so that's the challenge, right? You cannot rely exclusively on these tools. They are tools. They are not meant to substitute what we have done and the, and the learning and the training that, that we uh, as, as members of the bar uh, have all undergone. So uh, it, it will be interesting to see how it transforms the practice but I don't think in any way, shape, or form that it will uh, overtake the, the 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 practice of law. No, I, I think that that's probably true. I think what we will probably see is uh, a sort of sorting between those who do use these tools to their advantage and to save time and provide high service, and those that maybe. Are, don't, are resistant to it and, and want to leave it. I think that you'll probably see some night and day between those things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, look, uh, you know, we have a little bit of time left here. Um, let's let's go into some of the uh, the, the, the sort of wrap up questions or um, some of some some thoughts there. Um, 
you've mentioned it a, a couple so far in our, in our discussion today, um, but I'll ask you just for completeness purposes. Um, in terms of guiding forces, role models, mentors, who have some of those been throughout your career, um, if you can share? I'm going to start from the very beginning. I told you I was a New York City girl born and raised in Harlem, and I would not be where I am today without the members of Salem United Methodist Church in Harlem okay. who took a little girl and gave her my first opportunities to write speeches and to deliver speeches, not knowing for me that, you know, that is really the kind of a confidence building that you uh, you need. So I would shout out to all the women at Salem United Methodist Church who, uh, by their examples of dignity and nurturing, started me on, on this road. And they were the same little old ladies who would put the $5 in my hand for the book money back when you actually had to buy books for college and law school. So they were really instrumental in ways that I don't think I recognized until I got out into the world. Um, you know, in the ABA, Rona Mears, I mentioned the first uh, woman chair of the international law section, Jim Silkenat, a fellow New York lawyer. And, and I think Jim and I are the only to uh, former chairs of the international section become ABA president. Uh, but mm -hmm. Jim was really uh, just instrumental in mentoring me. And I don't even think back then I, I, I recognized it as mentoring, you know, in the formal ways that we talk about now, but that's what it was. Uh, Dean Hausler, the Dean of Students at the University of Miami uh, Law School, when I felt overwhelmed as we do in law school, and uh, thinking that I, I can't really do this and going into her office, she, it, she always had an open door. Uh, and so those are, those are people that come to mind in, in particular. Of course, my parents, my, my father had a sixth grade education and my mom had some high school, but they were determined that I would go to college and they supported me every, every step of the way. So, um, uh, you know, I know I'm going to, People will say, you didn't mention me, but th but those are the ones, you know, I, we don't have all day for me to mention everyone. Uh, <laughs> no, no, no. Look, and, people. And people, people know who they are. People know who they are. Exactly. You know? That's right. This is not an all ex exhaustive list. You know, this is a, That's you can blame exactly it on the host. Right. It's a narrow question. I will say he must have cut that part out when I. Yeah, exactly. That. Yeah, that's OK. We can take the scrutiny. We can take the scrutiny. Um, uh, keep it right along with the same uh, sort of thinking. Um, what are you reading right now? What's on your bookshelf? So I'm actually reading a book called The Marriage Portrait. Uh, it's okay. by Maggie O'Farrell, and it's a it's historical fiction. Uh, it's set in Renaissance Italy. I'm in a book club, and that's one of the one of the wonderful uh, things that I love to do to relax. And so reading the book club, and the reason it's relaxing to me is because the first rule of our book club is come even if you haven't finished the book. So mm, I have okay. taken them up on that many times as ABA president. I really think I'm going to get through it. And I only get through like half the book, but I come and enjoy the conversation. So this one, I'm not through it yet, but it, it, it's I'm so far uh, into it. I'm really enjoying it. Sure. No, I think that's a good one. Um, okay, that, that's that's a good one. I've, I've jotted it down here. We'll put it in the show notes. Um, now let's talk music. What kind of music do you like? What kind of artist are you into? Uh, 
Ooh, well, I I like all types of music. I like pop, rock, of course, R and B, uh, sure. and gospel, and anything Motown. You know, oh, of uh, course. You know, so uh, all of that. I just you know, on any given day, and my 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 um, music on my playlist. If I hit shuffle, it could be anything. It could be. Mary J. Blige, it could be Stevie mm. Wonder, it could be Bruno Mars, it could Oof. be Billy Joel, it could be Dean Martin, it, it it could be show tunes. It's just I just really enjoy music. No, I, I agree. You know, a good playlist when you're trying to knock out some work or when you're doing cleaning the house or exercising. Yes. Takes you a long way. Absolutely. Um, and of those, um, I think. I've seen Stevie. I've not seen Bruno Mars yet. That's the one I'm, I'm still trying to find an opportunity. I am really looking forward to it. I tell people all the time, you know, at this stage in my life, I don't need a lot of gifts. But if you want to give me a gift, some Bruno Mars tickets, I'll take it. <laughs> but I've, I've seen Stevie. Fantastic. He puts on a fantastic show. I've seen Billy mm. Joel twice at Madison mm. Square Garden. That's fantastic as well. Uh, but no Bruno Mars yet i did bruno, see um, out there listening give me some tickets <laughs> hey bruno we're gonna tag him we're gonna tag him and see uh <laughs> if he responds in kind that would be pretty cool um i'm yes. sure he's all about international arbitration <laughs> all about it <laughs> um uh now listen uh so so this is we're wrapping up to our final questions here um and i, I think this is a good one and, and i really enjoy asking all of our guests that um if you were approached by a student, a recent grad, or someone looking to break into, I say your field, international law, international arbitration, IP, anything in that, those realms, what advice would you give them uh, to kind of help them uh, to make the break in? Yes, yeah, so I would say like any area of law, you've got to get a good grounding in the basics. So for, for international arbitration, it's really uh, litigation and understanding dispute resolution and principles. Uh, and and then, of course, uh, if you've got a particular uh, area of focus that you're interested in, whether it's an industry, uh, then getting as 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 much information and as much experience uh, in those areas as possible. But I would also tell young lawyers in particular to uh, don't be anxious about how long it takes you to get into your chosen fields. As I said at, at one point, it took me seven years. Now, I wasn't sitting around seven years going, oh, gee, I wish, I wish. I mean, I was doing other things and I was building my skills in other areas so that when the opportunity presented itself, I had what I would call the complete package. In fact, I literally said to the uh, the woman who ended up being my boss, I have the complete package because I've got everything you need. But, you know, so so think about it this way. You're going to practice law for a very long time. It's been 40 years and I can't believe it's been that long for me. And there's many more years to come. So get as much experience as you can uh, in, in a, a good grounding and foundation in the law and legal principles. And then don't worry if it's not immediate because it will come. I think that's solid advice. I, I don't have anything else to add to that. That's, that sounds like good, well said, especially that point of, I think people get, you know, I, I coach a couple of Vismuth teams 
And inevitably what happens at the end of the season is that they're like, well, Chris, how do I get my job in international arbitration? I want to go be like, you know, an associate right now. And I say, well, maybe that happens. Maybe. Yes. But more realistically, let's practice, you know, whatever your jurisdiction is, whether that's South Carolina, somewhere else, learn the rules of federal civil procedure, learn strategy, exactly. tactics, how to try a case. And then we can talk exactly. international arbitration. <laughs> exactly. Because it's just a layer on top of that. But you've got to have the foundation. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and frankly, you would do yourself a huge disservice by um, trying to jump directly into that um, without having that sort of uh, foundational sort of understanding. Um, let's see. It's 5 p.m. on a Friday um, and you completely free for the weekend. You don't have any specific plans, no demands, no ABA stuff. You can do whatever you want. How are you going to spend your ideal or your, your best weekend? I am going to be on the beach somewhere. OK. On the beach. I love uh, and, and especially if it were uh, January and I could go to someplace warm, you know, mm -hmm. I, I really just love the beach and, uh, and, and that kind of sea breeze. So that's where I would be. No, that, that's well said. Um, it is starting to warm up here in Southern Europe. So uh, the beach has been calling my name a few weekends already. I'm looking forward to the summer. <laughs> exactly. Um, now, uh, this is the, the, the final question that we have, um, and you've given some throughout the show. Do you have any shout outs, any tips to the cap, uh, any, maybe that you mentioned already that you haven't mentioned anyone else that you want to shout out before we get out of here? Well, again, my, 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 the partners and colleagues at Devil Boys and Plimpton who've been just so supportive, the ABA staff, especially the office of the president, because mm. it takes a lot to uh, be ABA president and so much of it is the staff behind the scenes. They're just incredible. So uh, absolutely want to shout them out. And of course, my husband, Rodney Ross, because he has been so supportive uh, and in not just in this year as ABA president, but throughout my career uh, in international law. We've been married 36 years uh, and wow. he has been supportive the entire time. Wow, those are all well said. I'm going to throw in two uh, two shout outs of my own related uh, related to you, Deborah. Um, I'm going to throw in Nancy Thevenin, um over in New York yes. as well. Shout out to Nancy, also a guest and friend of the show. And yes. um, and another, well, a former ABA president, uh, William Hubbard, dean at South Carolina School of Law. Really good shout outs. Absolutely. And it was thanks to Dean Hubbard that I came to South Carolina as I said, a real kind of full circle moment for me. It was just amazing. Absolutely. So for all those listening, shout outs. I'm sure there are a ton more as well. We'll tag you in the show notes. Um, well, listen, um, Deborah, thank you so much for spending so much time with us and stopping by the digital studio today. It was great having you in. Well, thank you. And I'm Deborah Enix Ross, and there is no disputing it. You are listening to Tales of the Tribunal. Thank you, and we will see y'all next time. What's really great about that conversation is that it, this was set up completely by happenstance. It was serendipity. Deborah happened to be speaking in my home state of South Carolina for Martin Luther King Day this year, and I just happened to be home after the holidays, and we were able to connect where she kindly agreed to be on the show. Deborah, thanks for making the time. And listeners, I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as we did recording it.
On top of that, I hope you had a restorative and reflective Juneteenth holiday. I hope you're enjoying season five of the show because we have plenty more episodes to go for this season. So hang around. There's more to come. Production and editing for Tales of the Tribunal is done by MoBeta Solutions. Music and sound is done by the collective efforts of Maurice, Joshua, and Jaden Campbell. Thanks for your help, you guys. That's it for this week. Thank you for tuning in. Spread the word about the show. Check out the ABAP website. And don't forget, there's no disputing it. You're listening to Tales of the Tribunal, where practice meets personality. None of the views shared on today or any episode of Tales of the Tribunal is presented as legal advice nor advice of any kind. No compensation was provided to any person or party for their appearance on the show, nor do any of the statements made represent any particular organization, legal position, or viewpoint. All interviewees appear on an arm's length basis, and their appearances should not be construed as any bias or preferred affiliation with the host or host's employer. All rights reserved.